You're listening to the Redemption City Church podcast. To learn more about Redemption City Church, visit us online at rccbaltimore.org. Today's message comes from Pastor Adam Mutasib. Well, if you're new to our church, we love going verse by verse through books of the Bible, and so we'll pick a book like the book of Acts and just work our way through it. And we find ourselves in Acts 20 and 21, and we go verse by verse because we figure if God really wrote a book, it's probably more interesting than anything I got to say. Let's hear him talk, not me. And so here we are to hear what the Lord has to say for us. But to be honest, you know, every now and then you get to a section of scripture and you're like, I have no idea what I'm going to do with this. <laughs> um, maybe you guys are better Christians than me, but you ever read your Bible and you're like, I don't really know what I'm supposed to get out of this section of scripture. You know what I mean? Happens to preachers too. I, I open up this section and I'm like, I don't really know what to do with this. Because this is an itinerary of Paul's travels as he heads towards Jerusalem. I mean, just look at what he's, Luke records, the author, in, in chapter 21, verse 1. It says, first, we went to Kos. Okay? Then we went to Rhodes. Then we went to Patera. Then we went to Phoenicia. Okay? After that, Cyprus. But then, plot twist. Are you ready? Settle your heart. We went to Syria. And we went to Tyre. Why? To unload our bags. Man, this is riveting stuff, Luke. Thank you for this. And, you know, you just read sections like this, and you're like, man, God, what the heck am I supposed to learn from this? It's actually one of the challenges of expository preaching, verse-by-verse preaching, is honestly, even reading your Bible, you you read it, and you're like, I'm not really getting much here. To be honest, I would never pick to preach this passage. You're not going to hear this passage at a conference ever. But here's the reality. Like so many things in the Christian life, you dive in, you stay, and you wait on God, and so much richness pours out. I think if you and I will sit in it and stay in it and meditate on it, you'd be surprised how much we can get out of this. So let's do that now. Now, the background info we need to truly understand what's going on is that Paul, you know, the apostle, kind of the hero of the book of Acts other than Jesus, he's headed towards Jerusalem on a mission. He's locked into Jerusalem. Why? Two reasons Paul wants to get to the city of Jerusalem. Number one, he wants to bring a money offering to the Jerusalem church, coming largely from the non-Jewish Gentile church. This is a sign of unity because Jews and Gentiles were split, but the Gentiles are saying, no, we're one. Let's give you some money to help you out. Uh, symbolizing their unity. And then second reason he wants to go, Acts 20, 24, he wants to testify of the gospel of the grace of God. In Jerusalem, there's going to be Pentecost soon. There's going to be tons of lost people. Paul wants to preach the gospel to them. So why is Paul going to Jerusalem? Put simply, he wants to display and declare the gospel. Man, that would be a great mission statement if a church ever chose to choose that one. Just love that. Uh, if you're new, that's, that's our mission statement. Anyway, okay. Uh, he was to display it through generosity, and he was to declare the gospel through preaching. So he's determined to go to Jerusalem. Now, here's the theme of what happens. As Paul's headed there, there's a problem. Paul's friends don't want him to go. Why? Because it's dangerous. He's probably going to be in prison, maybe killed. But Paul's like, I have to. If you read Acts 19, verse 21, he says he's resolved in his spirit to go. Acts 20, 22, he says he's constrained by the Spirit to go. And so what we see in this interaction is Paul's journey towards Jerusalem. What's highlighted is his relationship with the friends on the way there. The theme of the text, I think, is is the gift of Christian friendship as we journey in life. And this theme is evidenced by the repetition. You know, notice if you look at these verses in all of Acts, Paul is constantly with people, isn't he? He's staying with people, he's talking to people, he loves people. And we pick up in Acts 20 at the very end, and what's happening? Paul's with people. He's on a beach saying goodbye to his friends, the elders of the church in Ephesus. And did you, did you notice the affection of Paul and these men? There's weeping. There's hugging. There's even kissing going on. I mean, these, these are Middle Eastern people. Middle Eastern people love to kiss, man. I'm just telling you, 
If you come to a family reunion with me, you need to bring a napkin because you're going to be wiping spit off the cheeks constantly, especially like the grandmas and the aunts. Like they, they will seize you and kiss you. Like, you know what I'm saying? That's the kind of kissing we got here in Acts 20. Why are they so affectionate? Well, because Paul was with these men for three years, and he literally risked his life for their salvation so they could hear the gospel. They love him, and it hurts to say goodbye to him. And you guys get this, right? Goodbyes are hard, aren't they? Anyone here ever done long-distance dating? Is that not the worst thing in the world? Oh, gosh. I think hell is going to be just long-distance dating forever. I remember, like, Sherry was at college in Pennsylvania. I was in Salisbury, Maryland at the time. And it was just the worst saying goodbye to her. Like, I didn't want to let her go. You remember saying goodbye on the phone with the person you were dating? You hang up. No, you hang up. (laughs) No, you hang up. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. You're so obnoxious, you guys. I was that. I mean, goodbyes are hard, aren't they? Well, this whole text is a series of goodbyes, tears, affection, and some hellos, but then more goodbyes. Paul goes to city after city on his way to Jerusalem, and we get this inside glimpse at his friendships. And here's what I want you to see, not just the gift of Christian friendship, that's kind of our main point, but three sub-points, why we need friends, how we get Christian friends, and then finally, what we do as Christian friends. And I want you to leave this morning with a resolve to be the kind of friend Jesus has been to you in this church. Let's start with number one, why we need Christian friends. You know, like I said, it's, it's kind of wild when you read the book of Acts. Paul is constantly with people, staying with them, traveling with them, visiting them, hugging them, working alongside them. And even here in Acts 20, on his way to this very important meeting in Jerusalem, Paul still has time to hang out with his friends. He wants to be with them. He needs to. First of all, that's just a thought for you. Are you so consumed with your mission, your work, that you don't have time for friends? Paul did. He's like, you know what? I'll stop by Miletus to meet with them. I'll go to a different city, just spend a few hours with them. That's commitment. Do you have that kind of commitment to friendship? You see, Paul is occupied with people. And this occupation with people is indicative of our very nature as human beings, that you and I need people. If you don't believe me, just watch the show alone on Netflix. You ever watch this show? That is like a black hole of time. It would just suck your afternoon and evening. Not that I've done that ever. <laughs> like, it's a, it's a show on Netflix about a bunch of contestants who are put in a random place in the wilderness, and they just have to survive. They can bring, like, two items with them, and you just got to live. It's like the, the simplest concept. Just surviving and not quitting, you win. But the craziest thing about the show is it's not the elements that get people to quit. It's not the bears. It's not the cold. It's not the hunger. What gets people to quit is the loneliness. It's the isolation. Like, human beings are not made to exist without friends. I mean, castaway, you just make a volleyball a person. Like, Wilson! Like, I never cried so much in a movie over, like, I'm crying over a volleyball. Like, I lost. I need a friend, man. You know, NPR recently reported that loneliness can literally kill you. Not having friends can kill you. Loneliness has been linked with a higher risk of coronary heart disease and strokes. In fact, one BYU study found that not having good friendships is the equivalent of smoking 15 cigarettes a day. Now, if you stopped, started smoking 15 cigarettes a day, I'm pretty sure your family or your friends or anyone in your life would be like, that's probably unhealthy. But if you get consumed with your career, you get consumed with yourself and your own life and you don't have friends, most people won't say anything. In fact, most Americans will be like, wow, you're crushing it at work. That's amazing. You're working 80 hours a week and look at the productivity. But it's deadly. Modern data is just revealing what the Bible has been saying for thousands of years, that you and I need friends. Even the, the mighty apostle Paul needed some friends. Like, you never see him alone in Acts. It's not just Paul. Do you know that God has friends? The Bible says 
that God is an eternal community within the Trinity. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. The Bible says they talk to one another. They delight in each other. They work with one another to accomplish our salvation. And we are invited into their eternal friendship. You know, even Jesus, when he was on earth, he was called what? A friend of sinners. I think he chose that word on purpose. He tells his disciples, you're not my servants, you're my friends. Even when they bailed on him, he didn't bail on them. Because they were friends. In other words, to live without Christian friends is not only to be unlike Paul, it's to be unlike God. You were made for people. Tim Keller puts it like this. He says, to need and want deep spiritual friendships is not a sign of spiritual immaturity, but of maturity. It's not a sign of weakness, but a sign of health. I mean, think back to Genesis chapter 2, like the second chapter in the be- at the very beginning of your Bible. Do you remember what happens? Before sin enters the world, God looks at everything he created and says, that's good. Oh, man, those mountains, good. That, that ocean, good. That livestock and animals and all that, good. Those people that I made, really good. There's only one thing before sin entered the world that God looks at and says, that is not good. Do you know what it is? It's that Adam didn't have any friends. He was alone. Tim Keller, commenting on that text, says, Adam was not lonely because he was imperfect, but because he was perfect. The ache for friends is the one ache that's not the result of sin. God made us in such a way that we couldn't even enjoy paradise without friends, human friends. Adam had a perfect quiet time every day for 24 hours a day, yet he needed friends. If you aren't lonely, you aren't, if you're lonely, you're not dysfunctional, you're fine. You're lonely because you're not a tree. You're lonely because you're not a machine. You're lonely because you're built this way. Now, I have to be careful about this because one of the reasons you may not have friends is because of sin, but the passion for it, the need for it, the sense of the lack of it is not wrong at all. And so here's Keller's prescription to us. He says, friends, let yourself need people. Here's the trouble. When you're in trouble, it's too late. You know, very few people walk around saying, ah, I love air. (sighs) Air, air. What good is my brain without air? What good would my life be without air? You only sound that way when you're underwater. Then you start to say, wow, air. You don't walk around saying, I need friends, until you emotionally and personally go under. That is too late. If you don't already have them, you need spiritual friendships. Amen? We will never flourish in life unless we choose, grow, and keep good friendships. That's why we need Christian friends. You know, Drake, the great theologian and rapper, says in his song, Fair Trade, I've been losing friends and finding peace. Honestly, that sounds like a fair trade to me. I got good news for you, Drake. You don't have to choose between friends and peace. You can have both. Acts 20 and 21 tells us how. Let's see how we get Christian friends. Welcome to RCC. You don't get this anywhere, everywhere, man. This is, this is high-quality stuff, man. Everybody above 40... I'll quote the Eagles or something next time. (laughs) Or Leonard Skinner. (laughs) We love you all too, all right? Yeah, (laughs) if you're 60, okay. Drake is a rapper. Uh... (laughs) All right, what we do. (laughs) I'm sorry, that was such a bad tangent. All right, how do we get Christian friends? We saw why we need them. How do we get them? This is for you, Drake. Acts 20 and 21 tells us how friendships form. And it's really simple. The gospel creates on its own spiritual friendships. We do not work to establish friendships or relationships. Jesus has already worked to establish them for us. And they're in this room. Paul says in Ephesians 4, chapter 3, to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Notice, Jesus, Paul doesn't say, attain the unity of the Spirit. He says, maintain what already exists. Jesus creates us being unified and together. We cultivate what he's already made. It's the gospel that brings us together. Like In this text, what would possibly bring all these different types of people together? 
Even the people at Tyre. You know, commentators say that uh, they may not, may not have even met Paul before this text happened. So they're just meeting Paul in Acts 21, as we see. And verse 4 says that they meet Paul and they're questioning him. They're questioning his decision to go to Jerusalem. How does that happen? Who are these guys to question the, the mighty apostle? Well, they're immediate friends. Because the gospel has already created the friendship. There's a powerful picture of their friendship. Not only are they questioning him, it's the text says in verse 5 that they're kneeling before the Lord, praying together. Could you do that with someone you don't know in this room? After the service, say, hey, let's kneel together and pray together. That's the kind of friendship that's available to you in Christ. You see, what brings people together, here's the secret, commonality. Having something in common. Most friendships don't start by you going to Patterson Park and going up to someone random and saying, hey guy, can we be friends? No, we cannot be friends. That's weird. C.S. Lewis, who wrote a lot about friendship, he was actually good friends with J.R.R. Tolkien, the guy who wrote Lord of the Rings, and a few others. They had this group of friends. They call themselves the Inklings, which is kind of a baller nickname for a group of friends. They were the Inklings because they were all writers. And these, these friends would grab beers every Tuesday night at a pub and share what they had been writing to, with one another. And Lewis, reflecting on this amazing friendship that he treasures, you can still go to this pub today, and there, I think there's a, a sign on the wall that says where they would sit. And he's, Lewis says, friendships only arise when there is something for the friendship to be about. Essentially, you can't make the friendship about the fact that we're friends. The friendship has to be centered on something else. It has to be something else foundational. It could be our love of baseball or our love of poetry that makes us friends. Or it could be a common goal, like, hey, we got to pass AP calculus together. we got to rally together and figure this out. Or, man, I'm trying to get through motherhood. Can we be friends and figure this out? Commonality creates friendships. And this is not a new idea. In 360 BC, Plato said similarity begets friendship. Friendship arises when two or more people have something in common to share with one another. For Lewis and Tolkien and their friends, it was their love of writing and their, their goal to be the best writer they could be. They would get together, have some beers, read each other's work, give feedback, give encouragement. Funny enough, do you know Tolkien did not like Chronicles of Narnia? He said that it was too simple. Well, Lewis is like, I'll show you. And it kind of worked out. In fact, uh, there's one story at one point when Tolkien was sharing about the Lord of the Rings, one of the group one of the guys in their group at the pub blurted out so loudly, oh God, not more elves. <laughs> Just endless amounts of elves. Can we, can we draw down on the elves? Sounds like a great group of friends, right? Well, Lewis, just reflecting on this, says, a friendship begins when one person says to the other, what? You too? I thought I was the only one. It's rooted in commonality. And is there anything that we can say, what, you two better than, than that we have been saved, though we didn't deserve it, by Christ? What, you call him father too? Jesus is your elder brother too? You are a sinner deserving of hell, but you have been given the, the righteousness and, of Christ too? You'll be in eternity in heaven with forever too? Is there anything stronger than that? And since that's how Christian friendships are formed, this commonality with sharing Christ, that's why people who do not look alike, sound alike, have different interests, can actually be deep, close friends in the church. Like Paul and the disciples at Tyre. Because Jesus creates that friendship. That's why if you stay around long enough, you'll see really different people who hang out. It's why white lab biologists like Amy are friends with 60-year-old Chinese widows like Tina. Like you just see them getting lunch. You're like, that's just, you don't ever see that ever. It's why Dungeon and Dragons experts like Michael can play fantasy football with D1 soccer players like Cody. 
Uh, Michael showed up to the fantasy football draft with an algorithm to figure out who to draft. <laughs> and Cody, the jock, is like, I'll take that guy. <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> what other draft has these kinds of people? It's why an HVAC technician like Chris goes to an Orioles game with a mechanical engineer like Nolan. It's why doctors like Jeremiah and Ruth, who've been in school 20 years, hang out with power lifters like Charlito. Charlito's smart too. <laughs> Love you, buddy. You're over there. <laughs> Please don't hurt me. <laughs> it's why single women like Megan and Kylie spend almost every day at the home of Pastor Adam and, and Jen Wilson's house. It's a married couple with two kids, and you got two single women at the dinner table every day, helping with the dishes, watching the kids. Where does that happen? They don't even knock anymore. They just walk in. That's why older couples like Brian and Gina get lunch after service with a bunch of 20-year-olds. Where do you see that? That's why commercial truck drivers like Dan pick up and give a ride on Sunday mornings to medical residents like Joy and Love. It's, it's why Ghanaians like Michael and Sweeney have a bunch of white Americans in their living room during their daughter's naming ceremony. You got this Ghanaian na naming ceremony. You got a bunch of white Americans just sitting there, no clue what's going on, but they're <laughs> loving it. Where else does that happen? It's why teenagers like Brielle and Angel from West Baltimore come here to greet and serve young adults and, and folks in East Baltimore. You know, one, I just found this out last week. We have a, a bunch of doctors and surgeons in our church. I just found out one of our surgeon members did foot surgery on another one of our members. I just think that's wild. Like, who's your surgeon? Oh, it's the guy in my church. That's some good post-op care. Like, hey, can, <laughs> at the service, can you just check out my ankle? How are we doing? If you get surgery, it might be someone at your church who does it. Where other place are surgeons hanging out with their patients? If you're a Yankee fan, we can't be friends. I'm sorry. <laughs> but there's hope for us in heaven. And the Yankees will not be there. Oh, I, I don't mean it like that. I mean like the team symbol, okay? Not the people. <laughs> this is a powerful picture, friends, of the transforming nature of the gospel the friendship-forming nature of the gospel. Look at this room. Look at the different colors of skin. You don't even know the different types of professions. Look at the ages. Jesus establishes these beautiful friendships. He doesn't just establish them. He maintains them, and he heals them when they get broken. We look at this text, Paul has at least five different groups of friends. He's got the elders at Ephesus, he's got the disciples in Tyre, he's got the brothers in Ptolemaeus, he's got the evangelist Philip and his daughter in Caesarea, which, by the way, I didn't say this in the first service, the evangelist Philip, Luke says, is one of the seven, one of the seven deacons. You know who another one of the seven deacons was? A guy named Stephen that Paul killed. And now he's hanging out at Philip's house. So he's killing a guy's friend, and then he's staying with the friend. That's what the gospel does for relationships. That's how different they were, and yet they're hanging out. And we got the prophet Agabus from Judea. I mean, all these people have different backgrounds, cultures, cities, countries, professions. There is this spiritual reality we see here in Paul that I have more in common with a random Christian in Singapore that I have never met than I do with my own Muslim father. We have, this random Singaporean Christian has more in common with me than the guy I owe my life to. And when, when we get this, when we stick together in this and believe this and kneel down together before Jesus, and not just kneel down, but we do life together, we're in each other's homes, knowing each other, loving each other, weeping with each other, laughing together, having meals together, this has an actual transforming effect on the city around us. Jesus says, that's your primary evangelism strategy. Let people see your love for one another. Then they'll know you're with me. Because only, like, that widow who's 60 years old and that lab biologist who's 30 hanging out, how in the world did that happen? Jesus, can I tell you about the gospel? Can I just honestly ask you, would someone know that you're with God by the way you love the different types of people in this church. 
not by like, do you go to that event on Sunday mornings? Are you a member there? Could they observe tangibly your love for people who are so different from you, that's supernatural, and say, tell me more about that. We saw why we need Christian friends. We saw how we get Christian friends. We get Christian friends by doing life with other Christians, recognizing the reality of the bond we have and share in Christ. Another quick question for you. How do you do this if you're not a member of a local church? That's why Jesus established the church, not just to reach the world, but to give you a home where you can do life with other Christians. So you can have this. And if you don't have a local church family, it doesn't need to be ours, but if you don't have one, you need one. There's just no category of Christian that doesn't have a local church in the Bible. And so if you're interested in joining our local church, after the service, go right on upstairs, get some pizza, learn what it looks like to be a member at RCC. I'd love to talk to you about that as well. And a second thing you can do practically is join a gospel community. These are people who meet in homes often and read the Bible together and do life together. And if you are a part of a gospel community, don't just see it as an event that you attend. See it as a family you get to love. And my other challenge to you for your gospel community, just think about this. Try not to make your gospel community everyone of the same demographic. It should, like, let's, let's seek not to have every gospel community, people in their mid-20s who are all white, who are all in the same stage of life. I'm so glad you guys are connecting, but how is the world going to look at that and say that doesn't make sense? Seek out diversity. If you look at Paul's gospel community, Acts 13, you know who was in it? Barnabas, a Gentile encourager. Paul, the Jewish theologian. Simeon, a black man from Nigeria. Lucius of Cyrene, another black man. And Menaean, who was a rich Palestinian guy who was friends with the governor. That's a pretty diverse gospel community. Let's seek to make ours the same as well. Now, that's going to be more uncomfortable. That's going to that's gonna mean you're going to have to sacrifice and reach out and maybe find things to talk about sometimes. <laughs> but it's worth it. It's worth it. We saw why we need Christian friends. We saw how we get Christian friends. Let's finally see what we do as Christian friends. What should our friendships look like? Now, before I dive into the, the, what it looks like to have Christian friends, can I just... Can you lock in with me for a moment? Because, I mean, our church needs... I've seen this so often, over and over and over again, at church after church after church, and it's seen it at our church as well. Just because you have friends that are Christians doesn't mean that that is a Christian friendship. You can have friends that are Christians, but it's not a Christian friendship. A Non-Christian friendship, maybe perhaps between Christians, is when people want something from me, not something for me. A Christian friendship is when people want something for me, not something from me. I'm looking to give more than I'm looking to receive. And I know, I know, there are people in this room right now saying, I wish I had deeper friendships at this church. Why aren't they coming? I don't know. But here, here's what I would say. I would tell a farmer, stop worrying about how much vegetables you're growing and start focusing on planting a lot of seeds and let God produce the vegetables. How about you focus on being the kind of friend that God prescribes us to be and trust God with the results and see what he does. The people with the closest friendships in our church are people who gave and gave and gave without any promise of return, and God just flourished and blessed them with intimacy. And if you're sitting there saying, I want this, and I'm not getting it, you're focusing too much on what you're receiving and not what you're giving. So I want to encourage you, as you listen to these four things of what we do as Christian friends, think not so much, man, I wish I was getting that. Think more, how can I be that? And watch what God does. Here are the four things, four characteristics of a Christian friendship. Number one is hospitality, which we see in this text. If you notice, four times in this passage, Paul stays with someone at their house. Paul never uses his miles to stay at the Holiday Inn. He's always staying at another Christian's house. 
Verse 4, he's in Tyre. It says that he stays there for seven days. Seven days he stays at this, these people's houses. Honest question. If someone at this church needed a place to stay for seven days and you didn't know them, would you be ready to do that today? These Christians were. We should be ready to open up our homes, even to other Christians we don't know, for things like this. It says in verse 7 in Ptolemaeus, he, in a different city, he stayed there for one day. Then verse 8, he goes to Caesarea and stays at the house of Philip. Verse 10 says that he stayed there for many days. Hey, Paul, we, you know, we're just trying to figure logistics out and the itinerary. Just wondering, how long should we expect you to stay with us in Caesarea? Many days. Many days. I will be staying many days. Are you, are you going to be paying rent? No, 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 no. But many days. And then after Philip, he stays, verse 16, with Manasin of Cyprus, who was an early disciple, and they stay in Jerusalem. So these Christians are not saying, my home is my refuge, my home is my castle, the way a lot of Americans say today to justify self-indulgence and people avoidance. Instead, they're saying, my home is a gift from God that I want to use to bless others. I want to use it as a tool for ministry. That's what they do, and that's what we should do. Hospitality simply means love for the stranger. Another way you could say it is love for new people. You know, in the New Testament, hospitality is a requirement for pastors. You cannot serve in the position I'm in unless you're hospitable. It's also commanded for all Christians. Romans 12, 13 says, seek to show hospitality. You know, that, that means don't be passive in it. Don't wait for it to come to you. You seek to give it. Initiate it. In fact, 1 Peter 4 indicates that hospitality is a spiritual gift for some people. There's some people in this room who have been supernaturally empowered by the Holy Spirit to be hospitable in a way that teaches us more about God. And we should do it, Peter says, without grumbling, without complaining. Why should we do it without complaining but with joy? Because Jesus has been hospitable to us, hasn't he? We have been welcomed. We who are outsiders have been brought into the fold. He has prepared a place for us, he says in the scriptures. The other day I was with, uh, we were doing a pastor hangout at Pastor Thomas Yoon's house, the guy who's at the welcome with me. If you don't know, Pastor Thomas is a professional chef, just a great guy to have as a friend. You just want one of those friends, you know what I'm saying? And uh, it was after, a, like, th it was a Thursday night, it was after work, it was a long day, and I texted him right before I came, I'm like, hey, you need me to bring anything? I wasn't going to bring anything anyway, but I just wanted to ask to be polite. <laughs> He's like, no, 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 I have prepared everything for you. And I said, praise be unto God. <laughs> I get there. You know, he's got ready on a, he's got a platter of wings. He's got my favorite buffalo chicken dip. He knows me. See, he knows what I like. He got me a tub of sweet tea, praise the Lord. Not nasty Maryland sweet tea. I'm talking down in South Carolina sweet tea. You know, like the sweet kind of sweet tea. Uh, amen, right? I get up to his rooftop deck. He's like, hey, I got some cigars for you. I got you 10-year-aged bourbon. Uh, I'm sitting there looking at the city skyline as he feeds me grapes. <laughs> it's glorious, man. You know what blows my mind? That's some pretty good hospitality. The Bible says that God right now is preparing to be that hospitable to us in heaven forever. He's preparing a place just for you with everything you like. And the thing we most want, Christ, is there with it all. We enjoy our king's hospitality, don't we? And we enjoy joining our king in the ministry of hospitality. We love making meals for the stranger. We care for the refugee and the sojourner. We learn what the people in our life love. We figure out their love language. Oh, you like quality time? Let's go get some quality time up in here. You like words of affirmation? I got you. We learn their favorite hobbies. We learn their favorite snacks, and we bless them with it. We let brothers and sisters in this church open up our fridge and take what they want without asking. We give away our house codes so they can just come on in whenever they want. The, room, the house doesn't have to be clean. There's pee on the floor. There's toys everywhere. Come on in. We're glad you're here. Help us out. We need you. That's life. My guest room isn't just mine. It's yours too. 
Seven days? Sure. Many days? Uh, we'll talk about it. <laughs> and this is a great reason to buy a house in Baltimore, isn't it? Not just so you can be here for long-term kingdom impact, but so you can better practice hospitality. Now, there are obviously seasons of life where this is harder, right? If you're here and you're a college student, we're really glad you're here. We love college students. But yeah, we're good. We don't want to go to your dorm. I, I'm, I'm, I'm okay. I'm okay. Like, it smells like Axe body spray everywhere. The one piece of furniture you have is that, like one big iron black futon. You know what I'm talking about? With a cushion, you like put it on the, the bars. We're not going there. We love you. We're going to my house. You know, we got candles in my house. We... <laughs> We have, we have silverware in my house, <laughs> you know, like we got throw pillows, we're good, all right? But you can come chill in my place and help us out, right? Or, you know, last week my kids had hand, foot, and mouth, ain't nobody coming to my house. We're not practicing hospitality last week. People are coming to our house to drop off groceries, that we're receiving hospitality. So we're not legalistic about this, there are seasons of life where this is easier and harder. Those of you who are residents, you can be hospitable, I don't know how, you'll figure it out. You work a lot. Uh, nothing you can really do about that, but we can be creative about this, right? Especially in transient areas like Baltimore City, there's a greater need for hospitality here than I would argue anywhere else in the world because so many of us are not from Baltimore City. If you're new, welcome. So are most of us. This church is four and a half years old. I've been here five years. People transition in and out a lot here. New students are rolling in this week. We have internationals coming uh, and going all the time. And so here we are in a place that is ripe for, for needs of hospitality. Will we meet that need? Many of us don't have family here, right? Many of us don't have our high school buddy here. So we all we got and we all we need. All people have to figure out life in this new city is the Kent Neighbors Facebook page. And there's a lot of yelling going on there. I don't want to go there. It's a scary place, man. Can we, can we be the kind of church that helps new folks transition in, show them hospitality? You know, I've found that the biggest need in our community is community. And there is, I'm telling you, I've seen a lot of different types of community. I've seen a lot of different types of religions. There is no community like the community of Jesus Christ when we embody what is in the Bible. I'm not talking about the American evangelical, show up on Sunday most of the time, sing a song, listen to a sermon, and leave kind of community. I'm talking about, you're my brother, you're my sister, everything I have is yours, and vice versa. Now, what can happen if you're new to this area? You can resist this and justify disobeying this concept by saying, ah, it's too much emotional effort to make new friends, and I'm only here for six months. I'm only here for a year. I'm only here for two years. I'm going to finish this fellowship, put my head down, and dip. Don't do that. Because scientists say that's the equivalent of 15 cigarettes a day for two years. You wouldn't do that, so why would you not have friends for two years? It's hard on your heart. And it violates the very relational nature of Christianity. Like Paul, like Jesus, you need friends. So I would encourage you to do opposite. When you're here, however long you're here, which I hope is a long time, be all in here. Join a gospel community. Join as a part of membership. We have so many people who are like, I'm only here for a year, and they dove all in, and they're like, RCC changed my life over and over again. So let this be a year of blessing. That's what we see in Acts 20 and 21. Longer section, but I think it's important. These people loved each other, shared life with one another. That's what friendship looked like, hospitality. The second thing it looked like, they had affection. You notice, like I said earlier, there's tears. There's weeping. They, they actually like each other, and you can see it physically. Like they, they probably put their arms around the shoulder of the person that they were with. Gave them a hug. Maybe like Pastor Wilson, they gave you a little butt tap, you know? You might need to work your way up to that, but he does it if you really... Ladies, I'm sorry, that's not available to you, but to the men in the room, if you work your way up, Pastor Wilson will give you a nice little butt, little baseball butt tap. <laughs> I'm pretty sure that's what happened in Acts 20, right? <laughs> Paul says in Romans 12, 10, love one another with what? Brotherly affection. Maybe that helps you. If you have a brother or sister that you like, how do you treat them? Well, do that to the people here in this room. These people, you know, you walk into so many church environments, it's cold, it's distant, the people look like they don't even know each other or even hate each other. 
you can't tell about any affection in the room. But these folks, you can tell, man, there was warmth here. There was affection here. They, they actually cared, and you could see. Let's be those type of friends. Third thing that they did is prayer. That's what Christian friendship looks like. Twice in the passage, it says that they prayed together. Why are they praying for Paul? Because they know Paul's about to suffer. This was strengthening for Paul. They just got around him and just prayed over him. We should do that as well. There should be times where we say, hey, let's stop. Can I pray for you? Regularly. It's not a small thing. In fact, in James 5.16, God says that the earnest prayer of a righteous person has great power and produces wonderful results. If I to- like, do you believe that? That someone praying for you has great power and wonderful results like it did for Paul. If I told you there's a vitamin you could take every day, it's free, and it will produce great results and has wonderful power for your life, would you take the vitamin? Didn't affect you negatively at all. Yeah, you take the vitamin. And yet, we so often live in community not utilizing the power of prayer over one another. God acts according to our prayers. The problem comes, though, is many of you don't want to be real about your struggles. You don't want to really open up. You don't want to, you want to look like you have it all together. So you show up to gospel community or you show up to, uh, to the gathering. And, <laughs> I got it all together. People only can know to pray for you if you share what's going on. Like the real stuff that's going on. Are you doing that? You don't have to suffer in silence. You don't have to suffer alone. Let us pray for you. Final thing that they do as Christian friends is they provide counsel to one another. You know, in the text, it's pretty clear. Paul had a word from the Lord. He was constrained by the Spirit to get to Jerusalem. Yet, you notice, he still lets the people in his life speak into his decisions. The disciples in Tyre in verse 4 tell him not to go. And then if you look, look what Agabus does in verse 10. You read this. While we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea, and coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, This is how the Jews of Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hand of the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the people there urged him to not go up to Jerusalem. So they're like, Paul, if you go to Jerusalem, you might die. Don't go. And it's crazy. The apostle lets them speak into his life. He listens to what they're saying. He doesn't say, let me stop you right there, Agabus. I wrote Romans. I don't really need your advice. No, he listens. We often say this at RCC, that, and we encourage it, that you dialogue with your community about your major life decisions. Let us pray for you and with you. Let us ask you hard questions. Let's process the best decision together. Let us in. You know, they weren't right in Paul's case. They tell him not to go to Jerusalem, and I think that's incorrect advice. But at least Paul is listening, right? That's a sign of friendship, that you're not a lone ranger. The Proverbs say fools make decisions alone, but wise people make decisions in amidst abundance of counselors. And so, what does Paul do? As he hears this advice, he still feels compelled by God to go to Jerusalem, but also, it's a, the, the text says that the Spirit, through Paul's friends, were telling him not to go. Okay, this is confusing. The Holy Spirit's telling Paul to go, but the Holy Spirit's also using his friends to say not to go. Is, the Holy, is God confused here? No. There's a difference between a warning and a prohibition. Notice in Agabus' prophecy, he doesn't tell Paul not to go. He tells Paul what will happen if he does go to Jerusalem. It's a big difference. Agabus is simply giving a prediction. If you go, you will suffer. So the prophecy, you will suffer, was infallible. The deduction, so don't go, was, was fallible. And especially since, you know, Acts 19.21 and Acts 20.22 indicate that Paul made the decision to still go by the Holy Spirit, led by the Holy Spirit, we can conclude that then he was not disobeying God by going. But I think, honestly, the most convincing reason why we know Paul going to Jerusalem was not disobeying God, but obeying him, 
It's because he is following in the footsteps of his Savior. There is another one who set his face towards Jerusalem. One who knowingly took the path into suffering and death, even when his friends begged him not to go. And thank God Jesus didn't listen to them, because then we'd have nothing to sing about this morning. Paul is showing us his incredible resolve to be like his Savior, to look suffering in the face and still be disobedient. Commentators call this text Paul's Gethsemane, Paul's time in the garden. I know I'll suffer, but the will of the Lord be done. That's why Paul says in verse 13, I'm ready not only to be imprisoned, but to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. You see, when you see your friend die for you, you're much more willing to die for your friend. We see the gift of Christian friendship, why we need Christian friends, how we get Christian friends, and what we do as Christian friends. We practice hospitality, affection, prayer, counsel. What does this mean for our lives? Can I give you just two brief applications? Number one, can I just compel you to be like Paul and not waste your life? I'm sure a lot of people looked at Paul's decision and said, what a waste. This guy is so intelligent, so gifted. Why would he go into a city knowing he might die? He'll definitely be tortured and imprisoned. He, he's way too essential to the church to do that. You know, they probably told Paul what Jim Elliott's friends told him at Wheaton College. Jim Elliott's friends said, Jim, you're too smart to be a missionary. You're too gifted. You should use your gifts here in America. And Elliot and four of his friends, regardless, still went to an unreached people group in Ecuador. And when they got there, immediately, they were stabbed to death brutally by spears. What a waste. Except a few days later, Elliot's wife and the other wives went down to that same tribe, knowing they also might die. And many of the tribe's men put down their spears and fell on their knees and surrendered their lives to Jesus. What kind of love is this, they would say. And soon after, hundreds and hundreds of missionaries followed Elliot into the mission field. I'm really glad Jim Elliot didn't listen to the advice of his friends telling him not to go. You see, friend, there is something worse than dying, not living. That's what matters to me. I want to make my life count. I don't want to waste it. I'd rather die in the slums with Jesus than flourish in the suburbs without him. Jesus says in Mark 8, pour yourself out for the good of others and you'll find life. But if you live for yourself, you'll waste it. Yet following Jesus is costly, but not following him is way more costly. The only thing more expensive than the cost of discipleship is the cost of non-discipleship. You follow Jesus now, you get unspeakable joy later. You reject him now, you experience eternal suffering later. And the best thing all of us can do is bow our knee to Jesus and call him Lord and say, Lord Jesus, we're following you wherever it may lead us. Let the chips fall where they fall. And if you follow him, you'll have unspeakable joy for eternity. The wisest, best, most adventurous thing to do is to follow him, even if he leads you to Jerusalem's. It's illustrated in the life of Paul. And second application, friend, I want you to know that the friend you really need is not in this room. The friend you need is available calling to you now, and his name is Jesus. Listen, I cannot fill the hole in your heart, and no one here can, so stop looking to them to be able to do that. He is the friend you need. And when you follow Jesus down the Calvary road, you will never be alone. Paul is journeying to Jerusalem like Jesus, with Jesus. Jesus says, I'm never going to leave you. I'm never going to forsake you. No one can snatch you out of my hand. He's always with us. Jesus says, I don't call you my servants. You're my friends. Jesus says, there's no greater love than to lay down your life for your friends. And what does he do right after that? He looks at a distance from Jerusalem, knowing in that city awaited a cross, 
awaited the wrath of God. But on top of the hill he knew was your eternal friendship with him. And he went anyway. Why? Because he loves you that much. That's how committed he is to you. And maybe you're like, man, I don't have friends that do this for me. Yes, you do. Yes, you do. And his name is Jesus. And he wants to be your friend forever today. Friends, let's thank God that God calls us friend. Let's just meditate on that today. We're friends of God. And let's pray. As we look at our friend laying down his life for us, that we would lay our lives down for our friends here. We would encourage one another, pray for one another, practice hospitality, affection for one another. And let's pray that God would give us the grace to follow Jesus wherever it leads, even if it's Jerusalem. And nothing, nothing, nothing is better for us to see this friendship in action than the Lord's Supper, which we'll take in a moment. As we hold the bread and the juice, it represents the fact that Jesus gave up his very body and blood so we could be friends. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for your grace. Thank you, Lord, that you call us friend, that you're such a committed friend that you were willing to come to the earth, live a perfect life in my place, and die in my place. Thank you, God, that you're a friend who will never stab me in the back. You're a friend who will never move to a different city and leave me. You're a friend who is with me through thick and thin. You give me exactly what I need, and it's secure forever. And Lord, I pray for those who are feeling lonely this morning, that they would find the first friend they need, Christ. For any unbeliever in this room, may they come to Jesus today. And Lord, help our church to be a group of friends who love each other the way Jesus loved us, looking to give and not receive, wanting something for the people in this room, not something from the people in this room. We are helpless to do this. We are way too selfish, way too arrogant, way too idolatrous. You've got to do this through, Holy Spirit, you've got to change us to make us into these type of friends. Would you do that by your power? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you were encouraged by today's message, be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you stream your podcasts. To find other messages or get more information about Redemption City Church, visit us online at rccbaltimore.org. Thank you for listening to the Redemption City Church Podcast. Thank you.